Good morning, Debbie. Hey, Kendall. How are you today? I'm wonderful. I saw you trying to ring a, ring the bell right into the <laughs> beginning of the podcast. I'm fighting the giggles as you were hitting go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happens, you know. So, um, this is our last podcast in September, and and the podcast just keeps growing, and we have all kinds of people scheduled for the fall, and Lighthouse Spiritual Center, where, um, where we operate out of our little... Um, Castle in Mooresville. That's what I'm going to call it today. <laughs> castle, okay. Yes. Today we're at Castle in Mooresville. And um, it's growing too. It's just, we're just, we just keep on trucking. We're blessed. Mm-hmm. We're excited. We're scared sometimes <laughs> too. I mean, to be honest, right? I mean, yes. it's, there's some trepidation some days. Some days there is. And some days... Like we just talked about, we, uh, you, you come uh, flying in my office and you're all psyched about something and I'm like, I'm too tired to deal with this right now. Sounds great. Talk to you later. And then you light the pilot light and then I move forward maybe a week after and finally hear what you said and then I burst into flames and I'm <laughs> cooking hot right. with ideas and then come back the next day and say, okay, guess what? I finally heard what you said and now... Let's turn it down to medium, and let's let these ideas cook so we can move forward. That was kind of our morning, wasn't it? It was. It was. So, um, but what I want to um, talk about today is that uh, we have Mimi Sherman coming on the show, and Mimi is, um, I don't even remember. Can you remind me how we met Mimi? I think Mimi saw promotional information about our about our on our website about the after school own program that we began for children, which kind of lit her up because that is a subject near and dear to her heart. And she called and wanted to come talk about mindfulness and meditation and, and for adults and just have a conversation and learn more about us. That is what happened. And then she came in and we realized, oh my gosh, there's somebody who wants to do mindfulness and meditation on a regular basis. And she has this beautiful history with this tradition and um and and people knew her in davidson and charlotte and lake norman um prior to now for this work and so thursday nights she's teaching these gorgeous meditation classes for adults with mindfulness teachings built into that and we're going to talk more about that today so i just look forward to exploring um this conversation with her from a student mind mm -hmm. And being able to learn about what benefits this tradition brings to anybody and everybody. So, um, so we'll bring Mimi into the conversation in a minute. I want to um, talk a little bit about what's happening at Lighthouse because we are building this October calendar that was why I was lit up last night because I, all these things started pinging. Um, but we have some things that we can go ahead and talk about and we'll save the rest of it for next episode. So what are some things that we feel like our listeners may be interested in? Well, we actually have um, a guest workshop presenter this Saturday, September 30th. And Laura Mock, who is a transformation facilitator here in Morrisville, she is going to be presenting um, a workshop called Who Am I Really? And it's a workshop on radical self-love. And it's an introductory class. And she's going to discuss ancient life wisdom that will shine a bright and loving light in the dark places of your life. Didn't you do the last one with her? Um, yeah, I did the last one. And um, she is just a beautiful, 
gentle and wise teacher. She um, can hold the space and lead the group and um, function in a way that you individually are seen at the same time. So her workshop is on Saturday the uh, 30th and it is from 10 to 12. Pre-registration is greatly appreciated so that we can um, prepare the space appropriately um, for all those who are wishing to attend. Um, and that link is on our website uh, under the classes and events page www.lighthousespiritualcenter.com. I'm pretty sure we don't have to say www anymore, <laughs> which I'm thankful for because that's kind of hard to say. Um, and then what comes what comes on on the heels of that? Um, so of course, Mimi's um, mindfulness and meditation classes are on Thursday nights, and that's from six thirty to eight. It is a drop-in class. You can pre-register. Again, um, it helps us kind of hold and create the space a little um, more efficiently and appropriately, but it is um, available for drop-in. Those classes are $15. And just um, come dressed comfortably. All materials are provided, and so, you know, supplied, the mats and the zafus and anything else that you need will have on hand. And then we also have very beginnings in October, we have the gentle small group yoga 12-week series with Shannon O'Boyle. And that is um, available on Tuesdays for a 12-week package, Tuesday mornings from 9.30 to 11, or Sunday evenings from 7 to 8.30. There's a couple openings at each of those sessions as well, and that's for somebody who really wants semi-private instruction at a really low price because the class maxes out at four or five people, mm -hmm. and, um, and it's also very restorative and very gentle. This is not a fitness yoga thing. So, but I want to, we're gonna really go down into the work of Mimi Sherman today. So we're gonna revisit these Thursday night um, uh, meditation classes. But um, let me tell you guys a little bit about Mimi before we um, bring her into the conversation. So uh, Mimi is received her lay ordination in what's called the Soto Zen Buddhist faith in 2001. And she began teaching mindfulness meditation at that time. She is credentialed through the Society of Holistic Therapists and Coaches, along with um, credentialing with mindful schools. And she's a member of the International Association of Meditation Instructors. And she has an organization called Breathe Mindfulness that she's going to talk a little bit about her mission uh, with that organization. But she's got this beautiful story of going through um, the training process and what um, some of these ordinations are about in the Soto Zen Buddhist uh, faith and also um, with some mindfulness experts that that we're going to bring up. And so I'm going to ask her about some of those people directly and what some of the teachings are that she's incorporated um, into her life here in Lake Norman. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mimi to the show. Thank, Thank you so me. much. Good morning. It's so great to be with both of you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thank you for accepting. Yes. <laughs> Mimi, I loved when we first met and you came and sat uh, here with us at our open table in my office. And and I thought, just your presence, I thought, you know, if I'm going to learn meditation and mindfulness from somebody, this is my gal. <laughs> <laughs> this is my this is my people right here. My husband calls me the queen of calm. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That is good because that's not a title that I feel that I could assume. So, <laughs> so take it and go with it. Um, 
please tell us a little bit about, um, I want to kind of walk through your journey with meditation and mindfulness and why this is so important to you. So I don't know where you want to begin. It seems like this all opened up for you in the early 90s. That's correct. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening at that time and where this all started? Sure. Great question. Um, in 1989, I was working in international marketing for the IBM Science and Art Gallery in New York City. And I would leave for work and catch the subway, usually in the darkness of the morning, early, early morning. And when I left work, I would take a company car home around 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. So one day I walked out of the building, it was about 7.30 I would say, and I looked down and there was this reddish brown leaf on the ground, on the cement. And I looked up and all the leaves on the trees that lined the street were gone. And I had totally missed the fall. Mm -hmm. So I thought, how am I going to slow my life down? It is passing me by in a blur. And so what I naturally started to do on my way home, because New York is just a visual onslaught of images, I decided on one night I would just pay attention to things that were yellow. On another night, I would just pay attention to elderly people. A third night, it might be architecture. So in a way, I was already starting to be mindful, choosing an anchor as opposed to being lost into what I had to do tomorrow or perhaps a heated conversation with a coworker. In 1989, I read the book, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. And I tried to meditate, but because I work such long hours, I normally would fall asleep. So I was looking for some sort of meditation, some way to slow my life down. And then um, in 1996, I moved back to Pittsburgh and I found a Buddhist group there that I started to practice Zazen with. So that was really my entry into um, meditation. What a beautiful story. It, it would have never occurred to me mm -hmm. to compartmentalize my awareness that way to start to get grounded. The yellow, the elderly, the all that. Mm -hmm. So for you, was it a painful experience to look up and realize I've missed an entire season? It was mind boggling. Mm -hmm. You know, I was at the time 29, 30 years old. And because I lived in a very competitive, fast-paced environment, everyone around me was basically moving at warp speed. And I think I was just dizzy, just dizzy with the pressure of everyday life. So it was a refuge. To start a meditation practice was a refuge. So <clears throat> at what point did you, well, I think, I'd actually like to reverse some of the ways I thought I would ask these questions, so bear with me. <laughs> but when you're in this group, how did you start to see this benefiting your life, like on a daily basis? 
In the beginning, I practiced with this group every Sunday morning. So we would do 30-minute um, periods of meditation twice and a 10-minute walking meditation in between. And how I began to see that evolve in my life was I was more present. Mm -hmm. When I was slicing a tomato, I was aware of the red of the tomato, the interior design of a tomato, the freshness of a tomato. So I became focused and aware of my life as it passed along. So that was the beauty. I began to embody my life. That's a that's an important word to embody. It's so important. You know, I remember whenever I started my marketing company, which was the life before Lighthouse and Spiritual Charlotte, um, that I was working uh, intensely in social media marketing. And one of the costs that I realized that I was um, paying for that decision was that no matter what else I was doing, I was always looking at social media on my phone for my clients. And entire moments, afternoons, evenings cooking dinner, mornings in bed, lunch times were spent doing something and looking at my phone for my clients. And I realized that that price was too high. Mm. And all of a sudden my life was gone. It was stuck in this box. And so um, that was part of the switch was that I was like, this is really, to me, equal to not living, you know? So I wonder how many other people have these types of awarenesses that they're not really embodying the life that they're in. Skimming across the surface. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that in my experience, especially in Western culture, people live with a full plate. And sometimes it's not only a full plate, but they have a full dessert plate and a full salad plate. And so life is really wall to wall. And we're not when we're not awake to our one precious life, I think we get to the end never really having lived. Yeah. And I also know people that they live this way. Uh, the bulk of their days and the way that they remedy that is they say well this is how it has to be until I go on vacation mm -hmm. and so and maybe they have have designed a life where uh, if I can get to vacation six times a year then this will sustain me for the rest of it but the rest of it is so uh, unembodied or so unpresent that I'm that I, I wonder how much the vacation really fixes seems like putting a band-aid on a mm. on a wound that's never really going to breathe and get air to truly heal mm -hmm. what i think is fascinating is when you go to a retreat center they often pass around a basket and everyone puts their digital devices in the basket i know that at one retreat center where they offer massage you know how you lay face down and your head is in that little headrest? Mm -hmm. One of her male clients had their phone underneath the headrest so he could see what was going on on his phone. So when you look at um, something like 86% of the people in the United States sleep with their phone by their bed, 
And oftentimes people are checking their phone messages, their texts, and their email before they take a shower or have a cup of coffee. So that sort of sets the tenor of the day, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about some of the, um, the mentors or teachers that you met on this path. Um, you know, I know that you speak of Shohaku Akamura. Excellent. Good for you. It took me a while to get his name pronounced correctly. <laughs> Thank you. Can you give me a tiny ring? Thank you. <laughs> Kendall pronounced it correctly. Yes. Um, I'm not going to say it a second time. So. <laughs> Can you tell us more about this teacher and sure. what was learned? Shahaku Akamura is probably the leading figure of the direct lineage in the Soto Zen Buddhist tradition in North America. And he has worked tirelessly over the years to bridge the gap between Japanese Soto Zen Buddhist groups and non-Japanese Soto Zen Buddhist groups. Mm -hmm. So in 1996, I did my first three-day silent retreat with him. And... I was bowled over by this gentleman's presence. Um, at one point we did a walking meditation and I was directly behind him and I thought, this is the holiest person I've ever been in the presence of. So I started to study um, the tradition with the small group of Buddhists that I was practicing with. He was the resident teacher so he would be the lead on any of the retreats that we did. So in 2001, I received lay ordination. And in the Soto Zen faith, that ceremony is called Jukai. So in preparation for that, you sew a small garment called Arakasu. And you sew that in a tiny stitch called the Japanese Ancient Forest Stitch. And it takes between 90 and 100 hours to sew. And you're studying texts of that religion as you go through this process. So it's basically an initiation into the faith. And the best similarity that I could draw would be like receiving your confirmation in a Roman Catholic church. So this is your initiation, your step in and you receive what is called precepts. And that would be similar to the Ten Commandments. They are a blueprint for living a moral life. That is so beautiful. Interesting, yeah. And so this garment really is like a representation of um, like the robe of the Buddha, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you talked about. And so, and so really the the initiation is in the practice itself, mm -hmm. the completion of, the patience with, the teaching of that process. Exactly, exactly. So it's basically you confirming that you will follow the teachings of the Buddha. Hmm. And so did that experience, had you already moved into the Buddhist tradition um, pretty fully in your life? Was that, did that take you to the next level of that tradition? 
It's interesting, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, has said, has written that you never really leave the religion of your origin. Mm -hmm. So being born and raised Roman Catholic, I would say that my religious leanings or my belief structure is a hybrid between Roman Catholicism, Christianity, and Buddhism. I'm sitting here thinking that it's very possible that my belief system is that same combination. <laughs> I'm seeing a neon light interface. <laughs> it is interface. It's very interface. And I also think that if I was born and raised in the Middle East, yeah, I right. would be Muslim. And if I right. was born and raised in India, I would probably be Hindu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the short answer is I'm a religious mutt. A religious <laughs> mutt. Yeah. 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 I love that. It kind of feeds into the word dogma. <laughs> I'll take a ring. Okay. That's clever. Yeah, yeah. Very clever. Well, uh, and it's like uh, our friend, yeah, Pastor Josh Scott says, he says, you know, it's kind of like you have a mother tongue. You have mm -hmm. a mother tongue. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't speak different languages, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and of course, I'm also thinking about, okay, you're sitting across from me, and the Virgin Mary's on the porch, and Buddha's meditating here. <laughs> <laughs> There's something happening. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. So, um, so, and then at some point in your path, um, I recall you saying that you then worked with the leading uh, mindfulness um, expert, uh, Shamash Aladina. Correct. Did I say that right? You did. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I've reached my bell limit for the show. Everyone else, you need to, it's your turn. Um, but so this is an international teacher and a coach and a speaker who really influenced you. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, I began teaching meditation formally in 2001, and I would say continue to read John Kabat-Zinn and Mindful Meditation. So my evolution as a teacher started teaching Zazen, which is a very specific form of meditation where there are no anchors. You don't try to trail your breath or body sensations, you simply sit and are aware of thoughts passing by. There's no clinging to thought or repressing or aversion. It's just a constant generalized awareness. What I found with Zazen is for an American to step into a Soto Zen Buddhist meditation hall called a Zendo, was somewhat inaccessible because there's a lot of etiquette, a lot of bowing, the way you move, the way you enter and exit. So I started to really lean more toward mindfulness. So what I teach is really a combination of Zen and mindfulness. So as we know, mindfulness is the awareness of your thoughts, your emotions, and your physical sensations. So it's your entire experience. Um, and that can be practiced in sitting meditation, moving, yoga, the body scan where you're sensing your whole body. So that's really where my teaching has taken me. Shamash Aladina trained with John Kabat-Zinn. So he teaches more of mindful meditation. And I did a 100-hour certification um, program with him that was accredited by the 
Society of Holistic Therapists and Coaches. Mm. And the thing that I love about Shamash is he's very, very lighthearted and he puts as much emphasis on mindfulness as he does heartfulness or loving kindness. And I think that was really the intention of the Buddha, the combination of both. I really love that you just said that because I think there's so much laughter and so much lightheartedness in this journey, this journey of awareness, you know, and the ability to also kind of make fun of yourself and your own, the way your own mind is working. Um, there is a, a teacher named Muji. Are you familiar with Muji? And one of the things that Muji talked about that I never forgot was that um, that your mind is like like a television set, just always flipping. The channels are always flipping, and you can decide whether to stay on that channel or not. Um, and he also talked about the meditation in terms of that he would say you are not a hotel. You know, you can be, you can be some, a, 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 you can have a sign that says no vacancies. In other words, the thoughts, they may come, they may inquire if they can come into the hotel of the mind, but you can put up the sign that says, yes, but you can't stay here, <laughs> you, mm -hmm. know? you know, because just letting things pass through you as opposed to all the, the clinging. And so for me, the way he languaged that kind of always stuck. It's interesting when people give analogies, how unforgettable they are. I know Shahaku and a lot of teachers will refer to the mind as the blue spacious sky, right? And watching the clouds pass. Mm -hmm. Shahaku talked about it like a screen. You know how tiny the little squares are in a porch screen. And if we live our lives basically viewing life through this screen, not much passes by. But if we enlarge that screen, our experiences have the ability to move through us, right? It's about strengthening the part of our minds that the, is the witnessing mind, mm. right? Allowing us to see our thoughts as they go by. And like you said, not clinging or repressing them. Oh my gosh. And you just said this morning that you wanted us to start a new radio show called the Front Porch Sessions. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> well, you know, because... Um, I love the way you tie things together. Uh, well, you know... And, you have a clever mind. Well, and it's funny because part of the, that conversation about the lightheartedness and the um, not, not taking yourself too seriously is that as you're talking, I'm thinking... Yes, but my mind moves about a million miles a minute, and I'm already making this connection while you're still talking, and I know that there's everybody feels this way, but uh, and and it makes me think how my mother has said she said to a group of people once after I did kind of a talk about my experience, so they were asking her questions, and she said, "Well, Kendall has always processed the world verbally." So when someone like you comes to sit in front of me and you're witnessing so lovely, you're just witnessing and you're quiet and you're watching and I see this, right? And I think, oh, maybe I should be more like that. And then my personality says, yes, but it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> 
because you are witnessing too, but you're doing it a little loudly. <laughs> <laughs> but the very fact that you're aware of that yes. is mindfulness. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the humor comes in, you know, yes. and it comes in with Debbie and I, you know, we, I, I think she's a little more in personality or nature, a little more uh, of a quieter witness and holding space. And it's a beautiful dance of knowing, yes, we're all doing mindful things. We're all witnessing. We're all in this relationship with how we're going to do the sacred. And it's not going to look the same for everyone, but it doesn't mean it's not mindful, right? Amen. Yeah. So I love it. It just makes me, it makes my heart sing to think about, think about that. So Debbie, what are, what are you thinking as, as she's talking about this journey? I love the um, just the the deep exploration that you allowed for yourself. Um, I think a lot of people um, there's a tentativeness to the exploration of something different than what they're currently experiencing, and people can kind of get to a grasping at straws kind of a place. And I think that's when addictions and addictive behaviors and things like that come into play. And um, you allowed yourself the space to take that in a different direction, and you know, realizing that there was that if you can kind of quiet what's happening quiet the the visual noise quiet the audible noise quiet the sensations that are um maybe competing with one another and finding a way to allow them to settle in in a way that you could take them in and appreciate them for what they were it's interesting because for me it was about survival right Mm -hmm. i think people have different degrees, varying degrees of how much static they can tolerate in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I think naturally as a child, I was very contemplative. Um, And I think too, as we move through our lives, on occasion we meet someone who uh, inspires us to take a hairpin turn. And when Shahaku came into my life, that was... A hairpin turn. I was moving in one direction and took a sharp left. So I just think it's it's fascinating to listen to people's stories, mm-hmm. you know, to find where those turns or how those turns have come about in their lives. Mm-hmm. So in some in some way you were able to be mindful of your heart, what was happening in that moment of that hairpin turn. Yes. And so that there was, it's that coming back to the heart center and desire and joy and love and peace and recognizing it on some level. Oh, this, this, and big fat quotations and capital letters <laughs> and neon lights. This is what is calling me. This is what is speaking to me. Right. And I need more of this. Right. Yeah. Yes, I think I say mm. that. When I sat on my first Zafu and Zavatan, I felt like I had stepped into the rain and my parched soul was going to be fed. Mm. Just, I landed there and it felt so natural to me. So, beautiful. I felt that way when I went into yoga. Mm. 
you know, it was one of the only places where I could get really still and just be really, really, really present um, because my body was involved. All the pieces were involved in that moment. And so I understand what, you know, what you're saying. And of course, then what happens for all of us um, creative um, manifestations of the divine is then many of us decide, oh, perhaps I should teach this, right? <laughs> so where did you go from, um, we never are end being students, but where did you go from, okay, not only do I want to be a student, but now I want to share this? I think because it had such meaning in my life. I wanted to share that. So in 2003, I opened with my husband a meditation and art space in Davidson, North Carolina. And Monday through Friday mornings from 6 to 7.15, we had a practice community. We would do Zazen and walking meditation called Kahin. Um, and then during the day when it was an art space, I would have different people, different ages, different walks of life come in that wanted to learn how to meditate. So that is how I branched in. And as I've often heard, we teach what we must learn, right? Um, and so that was my path. Um, we closed the gallery in 2005 and I started to teach at retreat centers in and around the area. Um, so, and I've also taught out of my home. So it was just uh, a broadening of my audience, so to speak. And people are drawn to meditation in Zazen for a variety of different reasons, right? Corporate executives are looking for ways to diminish their stress, increase focus and productivity. Um, parents are looking for ways to also decrease their stress but be more present for their children. Um, artists are looking for ways to deepen their own exploration, to be mindful as they create. Um, when I taught adolescence before standardized tests, the teacher's hope was that the children, third grade specifically, would come to those end of year exams being more grounded, less worried, more settled. So it's a variety. Why do you two meditate? Inter yeah. 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 I, it's um, meditation is actually what helped me come through the other side of my depression. It helped me connect more deeply with source, with my heart. Um, does ground me um it also it expands me mm -hmm. um it's soothing it's comforting it's a whole there's a whole list of things that it does for me and mm -hmm. if there are days that I focus on that to-do list too quickly in the morning <laughs> and I don't do the meditation I know it mm. I the day does not proceed the same way exactly yeah so um a, a daily morning practice for me before turning on the phone, before checking email, before no, there's no TV, there's no nothing. Um, yeah, no technology, no outside source of anything um, is allowed in before my meditation. <laughs> and it sets the tenor of your day. It does, right? It mm -hmm. does very deeply. 
Yeah, and you know, and I, I've joked about this before, but but it really wasn't until Debbie and I met that I became more disciplined about meditation. And honestly, if she fell through a hole tomorrow, my discipline might leave with her. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, because there's like a, I think a couple things going on. One is a little bit of like a uh, kind of an excited adolescent that lives inside here and wants to get up and go and already has the fire of ideas pinging and all that. And then but the other is that I think meditation sneaks in on me in, in practices that I do that are intentionally for meditation. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I require a uh, to be submerged in a bath two, three times a week, to me is meditation sneaking in on me mm-hmm. because that's where I go. When I go to cook, you know, a lot of times if it's something that I can play with, it's a soup or a chili and everybody else is doing their thing and I'm just immersed in that and all of the experience of this, the smells of that and the flavors and the I'm creating, there's a meditative sneaking in right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that just by default, a lot of us go to things that are soothing and take us into space where we sort of become a, more aware, more conscious, more at peace, more okay in our skin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it really is a meditative practice. Mm-hmm. Conscious meditation, I think, through uh, my friendship with Debbie, has been about the same things that she mentioned, grounding and expanding. I notice all my intuitive channels turn on very high mm-hmm. when my meditation practice is present. And that, for me, then builds into my work. Mm-hmm. Um so, mm-hmm. and I have to ask you, because we have a friend named Jill down in Charlotte who does rolfing. She's a rolfer. And she always posts these really poignant articles on Facebook. And I'm, they're always really long. And I always feel compelled that I have to read from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jill posted this article last week. And I said, you know, when Mimi comes on the show, I want to ask her about this. But it was an article about the, the, uh, kind of trick of meditation in the workplace. And the article was basically saying that there's been this sort of contrived thing formed in corporate America where we're going to give you all these wellness programs to do meditation and mindfulness at work because we care about you and this will be wonderful. When really the goal is productivity for the corporation. And I thought that is a really interesting take on that situation and so I thought but but surely it's beneficial so who cares what the what the goal is but what are your thoughts about that in corporate America it's a good question um I know uh learning from Shahaku productivity was not the end goal the end goal was to be more present for your life and to build compassion. Um, I agree with you though, Kendall, if a corporation is offering mindful meditation and yoga, the underlying motivation may be productivity, but those employees are being touched by something important, if only creating seeds. And like everyone that sits down on a meditation cushion or on a chair to meditate, doesn't thrive in the practice, 
but there are certainly people that will establish a steadfast practice because they've been introduced by their company. So I think it's all good. I think the only um, disadvantage, if you will, in a corporate setting is this heartfulness or loving kindness side to mm -hmm. the practice that I don't know has a climate or an environment in corporate America that can address that. So as long as it's combining the two, I think it's a wonderful um, opportunity to offer to your employees. How do you feel about um, meditation practices that are very adamant about leaving the religious or Buddhist aspect or Hindu aspect out of the conversation? Does that bother you at all? Um, you mean a secular approach? Exactly. As opposed to a spiritual religious approach. Um, my approach at this point is secular. Um, I, I would not say right or wrong. I'm not in a position to um, dictate what is good or detrimental for someone else. I think mm. we all are on a path. Um, and any which way that you can come to a place of being more aware in your life, more compassionate, is a plus. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. One, it, um, there are different people who are going to hear the message differently. So, so you know, somebody is going to teach it that way. Somebody else is going to teach it a different way, and you're going to reach two segments of the population. And how can that be a bad thing? Because mm -hmm. the practice is still there. The benefit is still there. I think that I agree also, um, you know, in yoga community, that was always kind of some people that under, that feel that the spiritual side of yoga and the roots of yoga need to be kept more intact with the practice would be really bothered by the separation of that out. Um, and I would say that I agree, like however you're going to come into it is going to be beneficial and wonderful and it's it's only going to be, be good for your life. But that, that if the question was asked and you felt like you had to hide the other side in order to save the audience, if somebody said, well, can you tell us about the Buddhist connection or can you tell us about the Hindu connection? And if there was a feeling I have to hide this for this audience, then I think there would be an integrity problem at that moment. If the practitioner felt, I can't really tell them this part for fear they're going to kick me out of the building. If the question was asked, mm -hmm. do you know, do you see what I'm saying? Well, I think it's about standing in your own truth, mm -hmm. being able to represent authentically what your path has been. Right. Um, and some people have reached a wise place in their life where they can stand in their own life and express that. Maybe <clears throat> a younger person or another person isn't quite confident enough to do that, but it's all on a growth curve, mm -hmm. right? I love that. Mm -hmm. So can you um, kind of talk to us about what are the, what is the, what is the big deal about being still? <laughs> I mean, everybody, that, that is, a, I think, becoming a little bit of a mainstream conversation, a little bit, right? Like the benefits of getting still with each other. 
What is that really about? Um, for me, the benefit of being still with another, and it's what I encourage my students to do, is to find a group or a friend that they can sit meditation with, is that it helps to strengthen our practice. And it also helps to share the journey with a kindred spirit where you can talk about what you experience in your practice and ask questions and reflect together. So you begin to build um, a community. And I think we're all strengthened. I remember listening to the president of Queens College recently, and she said, if you want to go fast, travel alone, if you want to go meaningfully, travel in a group, mm. which I love that. Interesting. I really love that. Yeah. I like yeah. that quote. Like yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, because, uh, you know, like with our podcast, we say that uh, I so there's the bells. <laughs> we say that isolation is the silent killer. You know, that um, if you can't find spaces to be in community, then uh, there's almost a, uh, well, we're, we're, we're communal beings. I mean, so of course we need that. And haven't you found that at times in your journey where you just couldn't find a kindred soul to go through that period with was really difficult? It's interesting because I was reading an article in Breathe magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... The UK has formed several different nonprofits to address the problem of loneliness because it's epidemic. Yeah. We think that it's only the elderly, but it's the young mother who has just had a child and is homebound, or it is someone with a debilitating illness. So loneliness and the attempt to find your kindred spirits is a challenge mm -hmm. in our culture. Yes. Well, and I think in the, in the conversation of stillness, um, when you don't have community with anyone where you can be still, there's, there's like this constant stimulation of whether it's conversation, whether it's um, social media, whether it's the television and the news, uh, teachers in school, I mean, there's, there's constant, constant, constant stimulation present in our lives. And that is outside the home and then coming in the home, it is very prevalent in the home as well. And we have forgotten how to be in stillness with ourselves and with one another. And I think that feeds into the stress and the anxiety and the ADD and the ADHD behaviors. It's this constant, we don't know how to be still. We do not know how to be still with ourselves and therefore with others. And so when you can get to that point of being in stillness with another, there's like this permission that happens that you can just be. You can just be around somebody and it doesn't have to involve noise. It doesn't have to involve technology. It doesn't have to involve conversation. You can just be. And then that begins to quiet the um, central nervous system because the central nervous system is so overstimulated, it is forgotten. Literally, your body is 
sensorily forgotten how to be in that parasympathetic dominance. Oh, yeah. Just the relaxation response. It's interesting, over 70% of children, when you ask them, when do you experience quiet during your day, they will say when they sleep. Mm-hmm. That's the only time that they're silenced. So you're right. We live in a society that is starved mm-hmm. for silence. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, um, being out in the world and being so stimulated, to be still allows my soul to catch up. Mm-hmm. Right? It allows authentic expression at that point. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not in compare or contrast with something else that's happening in the environment. It doesn't engage the brain that, oh, I have to like stay on top of this conversation or interact with this person in any shape or form other than just have my energetic being be in stillness with their energetic being. Yeah, and I, I, I hear what I'm hearing is like it gets you in touch with the essence of life, mm-hmm. just the essence, the very essence of life. And well, what did you talk about the other day with... Um, um, the generation that can sit on the front porch, the 80-year-old man who can sit on the front porch and rock all day on a Sunday, let's say. Yeah, and then and you when you let's arrive say. to that, mm-hmm. you're drawn to that. You know, um, we talked about the North and the South earlier before the show started, which I think is funny because I'm going to bring up the South now. But, but in the South, this whole like thing of people like rocking on porches for hours... Mm-hmm. Well, as a child and growing up, I was always drawn to that because what is the what is it what is the contentment level that is inside a person that they they are just able to sit and rock and be and watch what is happening outside of the, the porch, just witness, yeah, just witness. right, but being stillness with right. it, and you're still interacting. It's just it's a different kind of interaction. Well, I think it's interesting too when you say essence. When we talk about mindfulness, one of the um, outcomes or benefits of a formal practice of mindful meditation is that we then can be present for another person. Um, we are deeply listening and experience someone's essence, right, with eye contact and noticing the tenor and the pace of their speech, um, listening from a place of not anticipating of what I'm going to say or place of advice and fixing, but just simply being there. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to an NPR special and they were talking about life's purpose. And so people were calling in to explain what their life's purpose was and there were grandiose ideas Mm -hmm. about what people's life's purpose was or were and this one gentleman called in and he said my life's purpose is to love the person in front of me and it went quiet Mm -hmm. what a profound statement and in order to love someone we have to be deeply listening we have to be mindful right so you know mindfulness i think really changes and improves the dynamic in relationships Mm -hmm. um several weeks ago my husband and i 
we're having a conversation and our voices started to escalate and we were heading for an argument. And because I practiced, I could feel fear sort of churning up in my body. And I said, just come over here. Let's hold hands and take three deep breaths together. And I could express how I was becoming fearful of the content of the conversation. And I said, we're allies, we're on the same team. So as opposed to an argument, it was a compassionate conversation, right? So really emotional intelligence is gained when we are mindful. And that bleeds into all of our relationships, right? Mm. Oh gosh, that makes me think about so many things. It makes me think about um, me saying to uh, my husband in the past, you know, if I get like that again, just don't say anything. Just come give me a hug. Just hold me. Because everything will go from way up here to now a manageable place where the conversation isn't making it more than it needs to be or whatever. Um, you know, I think about back in the, my teens and, and early 20s, it was really the hippies around me that taught me about this. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, that was the direction I went in. And, um, and I noticed as I met people in college who, lived, who were coming from Kentucky and Virginia and all these other places, I noticed a difference in some of the cadence of how they spoke and were aware in conversation. I noticed there was a softness that I didn't know about from my own family. Mm -hmm. I noticed there was a gentleness in how they replied. Some of it may have been contrived to fit into hippie world, but a lot of it was very genuine because they came from a different place than I came from. Uh, and, and we didn't, in, in my family, this wasn't valued. You know, in a lot of people's family, this way of communicating is not valued. Mm -hmm. And so I started to see, oh, there's another way to be in relationship, to be seen, to be heard, to hold space for somebody, to not be so quick. Um, so I love how, again, how this mindfulness and meditation peeks in on our lives and kind of sneaks in and peeks in because I guess it is really part of the very essence of life. And then there's a way to make it more conscious. Well, I think there's mm -hmm. two um, distinct forms of mindfulness practice. One is formal, where you're sitting down and have um, solidified five or 10 or half an hour where you're practicing either a breath or a body scan, something along those lines. And then it bleeds into the informal where you're taking a bath or you're cooking or you're in conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So really, as I teach, the formal meditation is similar to a pianist who plays their scales every day, mm -hmm. right? That's the rudiment of mm. the practice. And the more disciplined you are about that formal meditation, you will see more prevalent mindful moments in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. More practical applications. Oh, yes. Practical applications. As the day is happening. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this segmented time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you begin to, it's kind of like it, the overlay. It's like, oh, it, it just becomes second nature. Exactly. Yes. Wowza. Mm -hmm. I even feel slower 
now that we've had the conversation. I feel like I feel a little more calm. Don't you think that's about entrainment, though? I mean, just when you were talking about the conversations in college and someone would have a slower cadence or moved mm. more carefully, more cautiously, or just slowly, I think we entrain to one another. Mm-hmm. There are people that run at such a high RPM that I find it difficult to even be in the same room with, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we're energy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And all of us being empathic, all of us operating in these energetic relationships, because it goes the opposite extreme. You, If you have an employer who is really high strung, I mean, again, you're, you're now, your nervous system is shot all the time. And everybody's operating as if this is the way here. And if you're going to make it, you just need to acclimate. Corporate culture can be like that. Yes. So tell us a little bit, um, because we're, we're running out of time, which is always like the hugest regret of time. And I want to like be angry at time every time the show is over. <laughs> How many times can you say time in one minute? Um, tell us a little bit about the work that you do with your mindful living series and your mindful eating work, can you just walk us through what it looks like to do this work with a facilitator like you? Um, So the living mindful series is a four week, um, an hour and a half each week. Um, You work through the series with a workbook for reflection Um, I teach six different techniques of mindfulness um, to practice. Um, I teach it over four weeks as opposed to a three and a half or four hour intensive on a Saturday or Sunday, because I think it's really important for people to practice between sessions and be able to share what their obstacles are, what their questions are, that kind of thing. Um, And the mindful eating workshop is an hour long. And I teach four different techniques in that. One is we eat one raisin mindfully, bringing all of our senses to that experience. So it was funny. I did a three-week series for Weight Watchers. And after the mindful eating of one raisin, one man said, he's been eating raisins by handfuls forever. And when he ate one, he realized he didn't like the taste of it, right? (laughs) So, and then there's what I call a 20 breath meditation where you're counting your breaths up to 10 and back to one, which is really beneficial before you sit down to a meal or before you start to snack. It sort of gives you a pause to make a more informed decision as far as how you want to eat and how much you want to eat. Um, There's a brief body scan where you're getting in touch with your body. We live in a society so much in our heads that a lot of people, before they sit down to a meal, don't even really become conscious of how hungry they are or when they're eating when they're satisfied. They eat until they're full or stuffed. So being aware of the body. And the last is called chaining where... let's say you overeat and you look back through your day and you probably, this resonates with you, Debbie, with your background, but you actually go through your day to point out or to trail, to detect where your day derailed 
that then put you in the mode of emotional eating or what I call entitlement eating where I've had a hard day and I deserve two plates of pasta, right? I did a podcast. I get to go home and eat a <laughs> bag of Lynn chocolate truffles. <laughs> that is me all day long. I'm like, apparently I need to get into the mindful eating course yesterday. <laughs> Oh wow, my gosh! Wait, did you eat chocolate all day? No, I'm taking. I'm well. I mean, that, that's really not unheard of, to be honest. But yeah, the thing of I deserve this because this thing was hard, so I deserve this. I mean, really, every day at about two o'clock, suddenly that's the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and and it's funny because even if you'll know this, right? You'll know this. You'll get with that item that thing in your hand that food in your hand I don't care I don't want to think about that right now and there you are on automatic pilot with fork to mouth um habitual eating mm -hmm. is like an addiction right yeah alcohol drugs mm -hmm. yeah. yes I think the mindful eating programs you offer are really their own show mm-hmm so a standalone offering is yeah. that what you mean no you're on another it's another podcast another podcast. Oh, okay <laughs> so on, on air i'm like inviting you not so subtly be. for a second well <laughs> i have a lot to talk about because i've struggled with my weight since college mm -hmm. right and i'm a lifetime member of weight watchers and food is something that's a part of our lives you can't abstain from food so we all have some relationship with food in the last mindful eating workshop i did was two women um, had experience with bulimia and um, anorexia mm -hmm. and they came because they needed to be mindful of when to eat so it runs the gamut what is your experience debbie with that um i actually got involved with um, the eating psychology coaching training that I went through just because I was fascinated with food, but I, I knew there was more than just like the nutritional approach that I was interested in. It was the psychology behind a lot of it. And there was a definite spiritual component in that program that I studied in. And so that was kind of the, the tweak for me, but it, you know, I, it helped me go through a process or understand a process where I was, I had stressful eating because around um, dinner table habits in the family of origin that I grew up in, there was always stress at the dinner table. I didn't really understand that that's what it was, but I was um, eating very quickly and therefore overeating. And I would continue to eat when there was discomfort because of wherever the conversation was going or the tension empathically felt at the table. And then uh, those patterns I began witnessing as an adult for myself um, and eating when I was lonely, eating when I was depressed. You know, so I, I began witnessing behaviors in myself about why was my weight drastically, drastically, I mean, 10 pounds. I mean, going from 118 to up 130 in a year's period of time, it's kind of like, okay, what's happening here? There's something happening here. So the mindfulness component and understanding why I was eating when I was eating, why I was eating what I was eating, you know, why was I drawn to that particular food type, um, as well as the emotional triggers that were happening, as well as the day, the time of day that it was happening, 
but we have to do another podcast because I would love to understand the whole spiritual aspect mm. of your training. Mm. That sounds fascinating to me. It's very, it's very interesting. And it would just, um, anyway, it kind of it hit home for me. Yes. yes. Let's do another podcast on mindful eating because I, I, I feel like if we can put ourselves out there for our own journeys with it, then there are many people that need to hear mm -hmm. that they're not alone with that and that there's, there are some very mindful, spiritual and meditative solutions. Right. Yeah. So let's do that. Yeah. So before we close up the show, I want to, I really want people just to understand what is it you really want them to know about doing this practice consciously in their lives and what you're up to here on Thursdays at Lighthouse? Well, I can speak from experience. Mindfulness has impacted my life um, positively for many, many years. And as I've said before, it bleeds into everything I think, say, or do. So what we do on Thursday evenings together is two 20-minute sitting meditations that sometimes are guided, sometimes are in silence or lightly guided. Then there's a 10 minute walking meditation in between just to sort of relax the body, move a bit. And I do then a short talk on a relevant topic related to mindfulness. So it's really appropriate for anyone who is starting a meditation practice, um, people that just want to explore and ask some questions or people that have been practicing on their own for a number of years but want to reinvigorate the practice or find a community to practice with. So it's, it's open to really any level of a practitioner. So. We're so grateful that you're here. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. I'm so excited. So we will save the mindful eating show for um, sometime this fall. Yes, a future uh, record. Yes, October or November. And um, you can learn more about Mimi at her website, which is breathe-mindfulness.com. Um, what's the best way for somebody to contact you? There's a contact page. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or they can call. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And so is the best, do we want to give out any more contact information or say just go to the website? I think go to the website and the contact information is there. Okay. And um, and and then if you're curious, just join Mimi on, on Thursdays. And we certainly will be in that room sometimes because we need it. Thursdays, 630 to 8. Yes, yes. Lighthouse Spiritual Center, which is 645 Carpenter Avenue in Mooresville. Um, which is right outside, or it's in downtown. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for joining the podcast this Wednesday. Next Wednesday, we are going to begin a month of focusing on the men. So Damon Silas, who is a local um, psychologist, I think he's a psychologist, yeah? He is coming on the show to, um, to talk about... Um, uh, men's emotional lives and um, so many subjects that we think men don't get a chance to explore and then we're going to move into a month of talking to the men so mm -hmm. it should be beautiful thank you for joining spiritual charlotte and we will um, see you again we'll talk to you again next wednesday <laughs>